Well, welcome to church on spring break week. I'm so glad you guys are here with us. And I'm excited for the third week of our Jesus Skeptic series. For me, this is the series that I would have wanted as a 15-year-old. And uh, it would have been really formational in my life. And uh, I hope that the next generation and current generations will be blessed by this. But uh, last week, we talked about the case for the resurrection of Jesus. And we concluded that while there is a great deal of evidence for the resurrection, it still requires getting over the roadblock of, you know, the supernatural. And I think we also learned that rejecting the resurrection of Jesus requires getting over a bunch of other roadblocks, and it requires more faith in the supernatural than accepting it. And I think the most simple, logical, evidence-based explanation is that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, dead, buried, and rose from the grave, just as the Bible talks about. If you find that hard to believe, I would encourage you to go back and watch it. But for me, I don't have enough faith in the supernatural Supernatural, I don't have enough faith and superstition to reject the resurrection of Jesus or to embrace atheism. And uh, my faith is bolstered by what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks. Um, next week, uh, this week and next week, uh, originally I was going to do these in reverse order. I've been waffling back and forth. Um, but I think the creation of the universe is going to make a really good Palm Sunday message. And so I've sort of flip-flopped these, which reminds me that we have Easter coming up. And, uh, you know, just like people who aren't Irish celebrate St. Patrick's Day, I think a lot of people who aren't Christian are willing to celebrate Easter. So I want to encourage you and your families um, to think about who you could bring to Easter. I promise it will be the best best service of the year. And uh, next week, we're going to talk about how we know that God created the universe. We're going to talk about, you know, dinosaurs, evolution, all that stuff. It'll be really good. This week, I want to talk about why we can trust the Bible. Our key passage for this whole series continues to be 1 Corinthians 15, which Paul says, I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time. I also saw him. Today we're talking about why we can trust the Bible. And uh, it's interesting to see Paul use the phrase, just as scripture said, as part of his justification for how we know Jesus rose from the grave. I, as a 15-year-old, always found this incredibly inadequate. It's like, oh, we can trust the Bible because the Bible says we can trust it? Like, as a skeptic, that for me is not enough. Like, Rod Blagojevich said, you can trust me because I say I'm trustworthy. And it's like, that didn't pan out well for the state of Illinois, you know? And uh, Andrew Cuomo says, you can trust me, it's far as nursing hope deaths goes because I've been interviewed by my brother and I say I'm trustworthy. It's like, eh, I don't know if that worked out super well. You know what I mean? And um, I think this is really important because more than ever, there's a lot of us who have faced challenge to our faith. We live in an era where you see a lot of salacious headlines regarding the authenticity of the Bible. And uh, I really would love to spend some time talking about how we can address those headlines. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna talk about the four most common misleading statements about the Bible. And I might say some things that some of you have never heard of, and that's great. A childlike faith is a gift from God, and you're not bad if you're not a skeptic. That's a good thing. But at this church, I think we can have both childlike faith and informed faith at the same time. And I wanna connect with you. I wanna help you connect with some 
the things that younger generations are facing. We live in an era where, especially if you're younger, um, you're going to face challenge to your faith and persecution for your faith, and you're going to need great answers. The four statements that we're going to go through today are, um, number one, the New Testament has more errors than it has words. That's a headline I want to address. Number two, we have no originals. Number three, the Bible was put together 300 years after Jesus rose from the dead. I want to address that statement. And number four, core Christian doctrines were not established until the Reformation in 1517. Today, I want to address these myths. And uh, this, once again, is going to be a teaching message. And uh, because I'm trying to prove the authenticity of Scripture, I'm going to use Scripture a little bit differently than I normally would, okay? And uh, it's still going to be an expository message. And I want to be clear, that is not the only way to preach. Paul says, look, as long as the gospel is being preached, we're good. And at churches that act like they have a sense of superiority because of a certain way that they do things, I don't like that. I just want the gospel of Jesus preached. We're all partners in this. So uh, anyway, I want to start with a story about Hebron, which reminds me, hello online, great to see you guys. Uh, Hopefully we've resolved our issues with Facebook this week, but if we do get taken down again, our website is not controlled by Mark Zuckerberg, so you can go there, that won't get taken down, and I feel bad for Mark. He's got a lot of critics and stuff, and life can't be easy, um, you know, doing that, but uh, I I was frustrated. We we talked about how online was going to be the future of the church, and last week when we got taken down, I was just reminded of, you know, how quickly, like, we we, we don't actually have control over that, and it reminds me of the importance of our physical gatherings. Last night, I was trying to post an article on Facebook about the Canadian pastor who was imprisoned without bail this last week for hosting a church service. And I just think that's remarkable that we're at a place where in English common law countries, um, people are imprisoned for being Christian and uh, for doing simple things that Christians have practiced for thousands of years when other things like bars and and places like that are open, but a church can't be. And uh, it just reminded me of how important it is to exercise our constitutional right to gather in a physical space. And uh, so anyway, proud of you, Hebron. Thank you for coming. Proud of you, DeMont Wheatfield. Thank you for coming. Jail, hello. We love you guys. Thanks for gathering in a physical space. I think it's really important. Freedom isn't free. And uh, I'm grateful for those who have fought for us to have this right. Now, um, I have to tell you a story about Hebron this week. And uh, it's going to make sense in a minute. But uh, last week, Hebron had some major issues in their first service at their 9 a.m. Now, our leadership team, our elders and deacons have been helping us evaluate services. And uh, recently, it's been neck and neck. Actually, Hebron has outscored DeMott Wheatfield for the last few weeks. But it's kind of been, you know, really neck and neck. And that's good. That's where we want it to be. We want to have a similar, high-quality experience at any of our locations. But... um, this last week, we had something truly catastrophic happen at, at Hebron. And uh, to understand why, um, you got to know that modern church is kind of run by computers. We have a program called Ableton, which is um, one program that controls all of the other computer programs that we have. It's sort of like Saruman's ring in Lord of the Rings, right? Um, but only with computer programs and also less evil generally, although evidently last week it was still kind of evil. Now, um, Ableton controls all of our lights, our video, our pro presenter. It, control, it controls parts of our sound. And uh, if we're using a track from like, let's say an electric synth, um, uh, we'll pull that in. Ableton will actually be the invisible musician. And most importantly, this is a big deal, Ableton controls the click track inside of musicians' ears. You know those earplugs that they wear? They're actually headphones, and it's a metronome that plays inside of their ears. And there's a nice lady who sounds like this, okay? She goes, chorus, two, three, four, beep, boop, 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 beep, boop, okay? That's actually what she does in their ears. Very good impression. If you heard it, you know what I mean, okay? So she does that. Now, last week, 
Ableton summoned its inner Darth Vader slash Palpatine and messed with our service in the worst way possible. And what it did was it, it warped our click track um, for musicians differently. So the musicians were hearing the click track thinking that they were on tempo, but they were all out of sync with each other because it was warping it faster and slower. And um, it was terrible. And here's the thing. Since we've instituted Ableton, like our services have been much tighter and much better until we have an error. And then Ableton turns our services into a complete dumpster fire. And um, Hebron, we still don't fully understand how this happened, but uh, at least now you know what, what happened. Now, I found out the extent of what happened when um, Claire Anderson sent a cell phone video that I ended up seeing. And uh, let me tell you, as soon as I was watching this, I felt like I was on fire with a bear chasing me. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was so awkward for me. I couldn't, I was like, oh my goodness, that's so awkward. What do I do? I can't do anything. And I was watching it in the past. So I can't imagine for the people who are in the room, must have been alarming. And immediately, I just read the headline in my mind, like Hebron service was messed up. And I thought, how could we have done this for all four songs in that service? Why could we not have reset Ableton, right? And uh, I immediately in my mind blamed Noah Felton, the worship director up there. I was like, Noah, how could you do this? You didn't even try. And what's wrong in my mind? You know, because all I had was just the headline, just a little bit of out of context information. And when all you have is a little bit of information, when all you do is read the headline without reading the rest of the story and putting it in context, the temptation is to believe the worst, isn't it? I mean, that's what we do in life. And so many of us, we don't even read stories anymore. We just read the headline. And this is so common today with the news, right? Everyone just reads the headline. Murder hornets will kill you. That was a headline, an actual headline this last year. Masks will be worn forever. That was a headline this last year. How about this one? Study says, all police officers are racist. That was a real headline this last year. Or how about this one? 15 days to slow the spread. We just celebrated the one year anniversary of 15 days to slow the spread. It's a long, long 15 days. Obviously, obviously though, we're motivated by fear. When you read a headline, it's really tempting to just believe the headline without reading the rest of the story. And when I heard the headline at Hebron, I was really tempted to think Noah didn't even attempt to test Ableton ahead of time. He could have fixed it at the host piece. He could have fixed it during the message. Why was it all four songs? How did this happen? I was so upset. But instead, I said, you know what? I'm gonna seek greater context. So I sent him what for me was a very, very nice text and I will read it to you, okay? This is what I said. I just said, Noah, I received a recording of some of the things that happened during first service and I'd like to have a conversation with you about it this morning. I'll be driving up to Hebron to talk to you as soon as possible. I'll be there by 10. What time can you meet? I'd like to talk specifically about, and I sent him an agenda, just a little agenda. Number one, what problems were, what the problems were secondary issues caused by the first problem, steps you took to fix the action, why your choices didn't work, how you could have done it correctly, what steps need to be taken to prevent this in the future, what steps have been done or what the team can do to help you fix this. I said, Noah, and this is nice. I said, Noah, you're a brilliant, talented man and I know you're gonna overcome this, but this was a major service disaster and I wanna make sure that we thoroughly debrief it, right? Now, my wife later informed me that I forgot emojis, which are like apparently an important thing to do in a text message, right? If you add LOL, then you could pretty much say anything, LOL. But um, I didn't do that, but uh, Noah received it great. And um, I, I'm so proud of how he was able to respond to this. And what I found out as I read the rest of the article with Noah was that he had done everything that he had been trained to do and he did it with excellence. And I tried to fix it at every single juncture. And uh, what I realized is that we had some deficient systems in Hebron that we were able to apply this week and help fix the issue. And if I would have just read the headline, I would have been tempted to believe the worst about Noah. But when I looked at the rest of the story, I realized that God has given us a super talented, great worship leader and tech director up there. And I realized Noah was great. I think for so many of us in our life, 
We're tempted to listen to the headline that confirms our worst fears without reading the context. And I think especially when it comes to the Bible, this really matters. Regarding the Bible, it's easy to listen to the headline of our fears. Lots of headlines play to them. And I wanna spend some time bringing some context to these headlines. Because for so many of us, we're one bad headline away from losing our faith. So let's address the first headline to talk about today. There are more errors in the Bible than there are words. Bart Ehrman is uh, the head of the New Testament department at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. He is a deconverted Christian, and I have personally witnessed him twisting the truth to make the case for the Bible sound worse than it is. And uh, one of my professors at Wheaton, who actually has spoken here, Dr. Jerry Root, has confronted him on this, and basically Dr. Ehrman said, well, I just like making money, and statements like this do that. But um, he's the one who made this headline famous right here. He wrote this. And it is true that there are about 186,000 words in the New Testament, and that our ancient manuscript variances of the New Testament number between 200 and 400,000, depending on how you count. But this is fake news for a number of different reasons. First off, 99.6% of these errors have to do with spelling, word order changes, or minor article word differences that have no impact on meaning. For example, do you spell gray as gray or gray? Uh -uh. The Bible is corrupted. Not really. Um, how about this one? He went up to Jerusalem versus up he went to Jerusalem. This would count as three different errors, according to Bart Ehrman, and yet I think none of those would be considered significant. 99.6% of the text variations have no impact on meaning. The 0.4% that do have an impact on meaning have no impact on doctrine whatsoever, which is, I think, remarkable. I think most significantly, the reason we have so many textual variations is because we have so many early manuscripts of the New Testament. So yes, there are more textual variations and texts from antiquity than there are words in the New Testament, but I wouldn't call them errors. Their existence is only because we have so much evidence for the New Testament events, which brings me to the second out-of-context headline that I have, and this headline will make, this headline make more sense, but um, oh, we don't have the originals. We don't have the originals. And uh, that is actually true. We don't have any of the original manuscripts of the New Testament. And the oldest manuscripts that we have were actually written 25 to 50 years after the fact. And I know a lot of you are like, I knew it! I knew it! I gotcha! I gotcha, right? And, you know, if you hear a freshman seminar, you know, philosophy seminar professor say this, it's like, ha, 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 my worst fears confirmed, right? Or um, you listen to an article on NPR and you hear that and it's like, what do we do, right? But, um, I wanna put this in context. Let's uh, check out this chart here. This shows the number of manuscripts that we have for lots of different figures from antiquity. This is Julius Caesar, and uh, for his writings, we have 10 different copies totaled from antiquity, and the earliest copy that we have of his writing dates back to 1,000 years after his life. For Plato, um, the earliest copy that we have dates to 1,200 years after his life, and we have seven total um, uh, manuscripts of Plato's writing from antiquity. Uh, how about this one? Suetonius, we have eight. They date back to 800 years after the fact. For Homer, we have 643 copies. They date to 500 years after the fact. For the New Testament, we have, uh, have 24,000, and they date back to 25 to 50 years after the fact. And when you put it in context, it's like, wow, that's, that's kind of amazing. Now, I know some of you are like, uh, Pastor, I notice that there's a pretty significant historical figure missing from that list that we've all read in philosophy class, Socrates. What about Socrates? Did you just leave him off because we have so many? Are you just trying to skew the data? And I, to that, would say, no, we actually have zero copies of Socrates' writing from antiquity. The only reason we know about Socrates is because of the way that Plato quotes him. And what's interesting is of the seven copies that we have of Plato's writing, 
all of Plato contradicts Plato. It's not like minor errors. It is major manuscript contradictions where Plato contradicts Plato dramatically. We have more evidence for the New Testament life, death, and resurrection of Jesus than Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Caesar, and Homer combined. We have New Testament manuscripts which date back to as early as 25 to 50 years after Christ's resurrection when compared to most of these people um, who the earliest manuscripts we have are a thousand years older. No, we don't have the originals. But we have an overwhelming, overwhelming repository of ancient manuscripts like nothing else in history. And if you want to delegitimize the Bible by saying, oh, we don't have the originals, if you consider that legitimate, you are going to have to write off every historical figure. You're going to have to say, every historical figure, there's been a conspiracy. Every historical figure is not trustworthy. And to me, I'm not willing to do that. Some people have also said, well, I don't want to trust the New Testament because it's just a copy of a copy of a copy, and that's hard for me to believe. And uh, that's not actually true. The NLT, which is what I quote from, is a translation from the oldest Greek-Hebrew manuscripts. It's not like, you know, the NLT was copied from the NIV, was copied from the NASB, was copied from the KJV. That's not how it works at all, okay? We keep going back to the earliest recordings that we have. Also, um, very commonly, is uh, secular sources uh, have tried to explain away the Bible, the way the Bible is able to predict the future accurately. And uh, regarding the destruction of the temple and uh, the Temple Mount prophecies, regarding um, some of the prophecies of Jesus' crucifixion, the Bible was able to, with great minutia and detail, predict what would happen. And uh, it also talks a lot about the supernatural works of Jesus. And uh, secularists have tried to explain this away, saying that crazy desert monks modified the Bible in the third century. And that's why all those things happen. That's how we explain that. And I don't actually think that that's possible. And there's a number of different reasons, uh, not the least of which is we have 6,000 manuscripts which predate the third century. So there would be 6,000 Greek Hebrew manuscripts spread throughout the world that these ancient desert monks would have to change. And, uh, you know, Aristotle, we have seven copies. Socrates, we have zero. It would be easy to corrupt their legacy. For Jesus, we have 6,000. And the monks would have to steal all of them and hide their ink work, which on papyrus is not possible. You can't hide your ink work. There's no erases. There's no take back. There's no second chances, okay? Then they'd have to get them back to their owner. They were super valuable and well protected without anyone catching them. And that's just reason number one. Number two, um, the Bible very early on was translated into Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. So in addition to finding these 6,000 ancient manuscripts and stealing them and changing them while hiding their ink work and sneaking them back, they'd have to find the 10,000 translations into Syriac, Coptic, and Latin, um, that we've thus far discovered, steal them, hide their ink work, translate them correctly, give them back, make sure their changes in a different language matches their original changes, which they all do. That's just reason number two. Reason number three, the early church fathers wrote thousands of commentaries on the New Testament, so much so that we have all but 11 verses of the New Testament uh, quoted in ancient commentaries. So now these zealous monks would have to, in addition to the 6,000 originals and the 10,000 Syriac, Coptic, and Latin texts, would have to find the tens of thousands of commentaries, steal them without being noticed, change them while hiding their ink work, which is not possible, make their changes match with previous changes already made, put them back without getting caught. And they would have to do this over the course of hundreds of years, lifetimes of work, without ever getting caught and without ever talking about pulling it off, because we have no evidence of this. And this is the legitimate explanation that liberal academia has used to explain the fulfilled prophecies of Christ. And I'm sorry, but for me as a 15-year-old, when I began hearing about this, and even in college and in seminary after the fact, I started feeling like those explanations sounded a lot like conspiracy theories. You know what I mean? Like, I kind of got to this place where I was like, you know, I think that that's not very legitimate. I think I'm going to take off the tinfoil hat here. No, we don't have the originals. 
But when you put it in context, we're more certain about the legitimacy of the Bible than we are about anything else from antiquity. And if someone tries to scare you with this statement, we don't have any of the originals. When I put it in context for you, I hope it's a little bit less scary. Because when you read the rest of the article, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Point number three, people say that the Bible was put together 300 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And it is true that the 66 books of the Bible were not finalized officially by the Catholic Church until the Council of Nicaea, which took place in AD 325, which was just under 325 years, or um, which was just under 300 years after Jesus rose from the grave. But uh, our own key passage sheds some light on this that I think is going to be helpful. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, I pass on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. This is critical. Just as scripture said, what is he referring to as scripture? It says he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as scripture said. What is he referring to as scripture? He's referring to Luke chapter 24, verse 27, and Acts chapter 25, or chapter 2, verse 25, 30, and 31. He's referring to each of those as scripture. Now we know fairly certainly that 1 Corinthians was written between 53 and 54. We know this for a number of different reasons. We also know that this particular creed, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, dates back to within three months of the resurrection. That aside, Paul calls the book of Acts and the book of Luke scripture, very clearly here. And this was approximately 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, when most of the people mentioned in the book of Luke and the book of Acts would have been alive to verify the statements in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, which means that 27% of the New Testament, because that's the majority, that's the, the, the biggest author of the New Testament is Luke when it comes to volume of words, but 27% of the New Testament was written within 20 years of the resurrection, verified by multiple eyewitnesses, including Paul and James. While there was some debate about specific books in the Bible until the Council of Nicaea, um, the core of the New Testament was certainly chosen before 170. Um, we have a list of books from the early church called the Muratorian Fragment, which includes almost all of the books in the New Testament listed as scripture. But most of the New Testament was finalized very, very early on. We know some of it was chosen within a few years. So if someone tells you, hey, uh, the Bible actually was not chosen until Nicaea, almost 300 years after Jesus rose from the dead, you can say, well, I mean, that's not actually true. That's not true at all. The Bible, the Bible was written and verified by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Which brings me to the final point that I'd like to address. And uh, this one says that core Christian doctrines were not established until the Reformation. The Reformation, if you don't know what it was, um, kind of a remarkable time in the church, happened in 1517. So long time later. And all the other quotes that I've talked about, you know, there is more textual variations in the Bible than there are words. Um, you know, we don't have the originals. The Bible's not put together until 300 years later. Um, there is a modicum of truth in each of those statements, right? Those are headlines that are sort of true. They kind of make sense, but then when you, when you actually put them in context, it's like, oh, that's, that's not bad at all. Um, this last one here is flagrantly false. I wanna be clear here, there is not a modicum of truth in this. This is flagrantly false. And I have heard this thrown around more than any of the other statements, and it just blows my mind. Like, it's, it's fundamentally not true, and it's, it can be rebutted on so many different levels, but um, the doctrine that Christ died as a substitutionary atonement for our sins, the doctrine that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the doctrine that we must repent of our sins, the doctrine of hell, heaven, and the devil, um, these were all established very, very early. If, and this is something I've heard a lot of progressive Christians teaching on. 
They say, um, you know, this, those doctrines weren't established until the Reformation. That's literally false. We have record of the early church fathers, as well as Paul teaching specifically in 1 Corinthians 15. He goes, I pass on to you what is most important, what has also been passed on to me. Christ died in her place as a substitutionary atonement for our sins, just as scripture said. Early church fathers like Justin Martyr, Polycarp, John Chrysostom, and Clement of Rome all talk about core Christian doctrines. And we are talking a number of decades after the resurrection of Christ. So if somebody says, oh yeah, not till the Reformation, it's like, no, 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 that is, that's, that's just patently false. That is not true. Clearly, Paul and Jesus lay out what our core doctrines are, and they've been the same for 2,000 years. And I find a, a small amount of reassurance in that. If you hear somebody saying this, um, either they're misled, which I think a lot of people genuinely are, or um, they're trying to manipulate the Bible for their own purposes. And I think that's what a lot of my, I've seen a lot of people who have been to seminary who know better teach this, and I really think that it's, it's just dishonest. Christian doctrine is super clear and unchanged and very old. So what we know regarding these statements is that the Bible does not have more errors than it does words. It's astonishingly accurate. We don't have the originals, but we have an incredible manuscript repository that is unparalleled and unmatched by anything else from antiquity. The New Testament has been scripture since very early after the events it records. And lastly, our core doctrines are not new. They were established and instituted by Christ and the apostles 2,000 years ago. So can we trust the Bible? Well, I think that depends. Do you want to be consistent and unbiased? Um, if you want to say, I reject the Bible, and you don't want to be like the biased jury, jury and to kill a mockingbird, you would have to reject everything that we know about history. You would have to reject our knowledge of all past events because the standard the Bible sets is pretty high. So if you're going to say, well, I don't think the Bible is trustworthy, you're going to have to reject everything else that has a standard lower than what the Bible establishes. That would mean you'd have to reject all of our knowledge of Native Americans, South Americans, most of Western history, Northern Asian history. You'd have to reject African history because they all have far less documentation. Everything we know about, you'd have to say, oh, we don't know anything. Even early American history, um, particularly during the Western expansion, documentation of it isn't that great. That's why they call it the wild, wild west. So you'd have to say, um, who knows how we got here? I, I don't even know. Uh, can I trust the instruction set for my garage door opener? I, I don't even know. I mean, it was written in Chinese and then translated, and how do I know it didn't get corrupted? You know, I mean, I don't know if we can trust that. Can I trust that this is my wife? You know, I mean, I don't even know. I haven't been wearing my hat to protect me from the 5G towers that could scramble up my brain signals, you know? And it could be that the government just, what if my kids are robots? I don't even know. I didn't see them get born because I actually passed out because my wife was making all kind of crazy noises. And it just, and I got scared. And what I did was I fell, I fell asleep. I didn't actually pass out. But what if these kids are actually robots? What if they pulled a swap right there? I don't, I don't even know in the Bible. Who knows? You know, I mean, can we really trust it? We just have an incredible repository of manuscripts unparalleled by anything else in history. But you know what? Uh, my standard of evidence needs to be that I saw it recently, you know. Um, and I just, for me, I reached a place at 15 years of age where I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to trust the Bible. Like, I think that is the thing that makes the most sense. I want to lay out one last piece of evidence. For me, this was also very persuasive, but I like Psalm 22. And uh, the Bible didn't used to have chapters and verses. We added those much later. Um, but when we would tell people to turn to a psalm, instead of saying turn to Psalm 22 in church, what we would say is turn to the psalm called Eli, Eli, Lemai Sabachthani. That was the title of that psalm, which means, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? That's the first line of that psalm. And uh, what's interesting is if you've read the New Testament in Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus is hanging on the cross. 
And he says, Eli, Eli, lamai sabachthani. Or father, father, why have you, why have you forsaken me? What he's doing is he's, he's calling out the title of a psalm. Now, most of the disciples who were there were uneducated. I think many of them didn't realize that Jesus was calling out the title of a psalm. They just thought Jesus was calling out to his father. After the fact, we realized, hey, that's, that's a title of a psalm. And let's turn to it. Let's see what Jesus was referring to. He says, Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help every day? I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. This was written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified and 700 years, 700 years before crucifixion would be invented as a method of execution because the technology didn't exist. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. My life is poured out like water. What's interesting about crucifixion, it typically would kill um, through asphyxiation because when you'd be crucified, they'd stretch out your arms. And if you do stretch out your arms as hard as you can, you'll actually find that it's difficult to breathe. The only way a victim of crucifixion could breathe is by lifting themselves up by the very painful wounds in their hands and feet to breathe. And um, typically what would happen is they would lose a lot of fluids from their body, specifically water, and they would begin to dehydrate. And the weakness of their dehydration would cause them to be unable to lift themselves up any longer. And they would asphyxiate. All my bones are out of joint. This is also a sad side effect of crucifixion is the soldiers would dig a hole into the ground four to six feet deep. They would crucify their victim by stretching them out on the cross. And they would lift up the cross and the cross would fall into the hole. And as it thunked into the hole, it would rip out your shoulders from their joints and your elbows and your wrists. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. This was a unique thing that happened to Jesus. A soldier pierced his pericardial sac after a pericardial effusion and his heart like wax melted within him. We talked about that last week. My strength is dried up like sunbaked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Again, I believe it is a reference to the dehydration that happened during crucifixion. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead as a reference to Jesus' burial. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs, a direct reference to being killed by Gentiles, which would be unique for a Jew in that day and age. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, this is unique because there was no method of execution that existed during the time this psalm was written, 700 years before crucifixion would be invented that involved piercing hands and feet. That would be a very futile thing. If you're trying to fight someone, it wouldn't be like, hey, I want to incapacitate you by stabbing your hands and feet. It'd be like, hey, I'm going to stab you through the heart and you're too late, right? That's exactly what they did here. They pierced his hands and feet. Why did that happen? I mean, they wouldn't possess the ability to refine iron in sufficient quantities to do this until 700 years later. And yet this talks about it. He says, I can count all my bones, which would have happened for Jesus after he was flayed by a cat of nine tails. You would have actually been able to physically see the bones of his back. My enemies stare at me and they gloat. And this is interesting. It says, they divide my garments amongst themselves and they throw dice for my clothing. This was not common, and yet this literally happened to Jesus. As he says, Eli, Eli, lemai sabachthani, the Roman soldiers were casting lots for his clothing to divide them amongst themselves. Can you imagine if I described in great detail death by electric chair in the year 1200? And yet that's what this passage does. Also, Isaiah 53, I think, does it more prophetically and more amazingly, but Jesus didn't refer to Isaiah 53. He referred to Psalm 22. Some um, used to argue, they used to say uh, that this was modified by monks in the third century. And this was the legit, common, secular, academic explanation for why this passage did what it did. And the problem was we had no copies 
ancient manuscripts of this passage from Psalm 22, which predated Jesus's crucifixion or predated um, the invention of crucifixion as a method of execution. They said, hey, this was clearly added. There's no way this could have happened. Um, this definitely was added after the fact uh, by a bunch of monks to, to vindicate the narrative of Christ. And that really explains it. That's what happened. Um, we're certain of that. You're never going to find a manuscript which um, predates the invention of crucifixion as a method of execution. In 1947, there were some kids playing on the North Shore of or I'm sorry, on the east shore of the Dead Sea. And one of the kids threw a rock down a cliff and they heard a jar shatter. And they went down there and they found what would become the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, consequently, within that collection of scrolls, there was a scroll which predated the invention of crucifixion as a method of execution and predated the execution of Christ via crucifixion. And it was a copy of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, which were exactly, exactly the same as the copies that we have. The Bible is so full of supernatural things like this. I have done an entire Easter sermon on the Temple Mount prophecies, which I think is remarkable. But listen, if you're like me, there's no amount of belief that's enough. I can tend to be skeptical about everything. I never, I never, I rarely trust anyone. It's hard for me to trust anyone. It's hard for me to, to believe and trust my wife, my kids. I mean, everybody in my life, I'm just, I'm a skeptical person. And what I've realized the longer uh, that I've been alive is um, first off, skepticism gives you power but it doesn't give you joy. Secondly, belief is not a feeling, it's a decision. And I never feel like believing anything, but I have decided to believe and trust a lot of things and it's made my life a lot better. And I remember making that list, right? We talked about this in week one. What would it take for you to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And I remember looking at this list and I began thinking, man, I have to go through a lot of conspiracies. I have to really put on a crazy hat if I'm gonna believe that this Bible is not legit. I mean, pick your miracle. You can believe in the miracle of mass hallucination, monk conspiracy theories to find and change texts in ways that would have been supernatural. You can reject the best preserved events from antiquity if you wanna be consistent. You can believe that the universe came from nothing and no one, that something can come from nothing, that intelligent design can come from no intelligence. You can believe that life can arise and be sustained by nothing and no one. And I just thought, man, that's conspiracy level stuff. Instead, I just, I realized I believe and all the evidence points to the fact that the God of the Bible is behind all of this. And I reached this place where I started to realize, man, I, I believe that the 66 books of the Bible are the inspired word of God, inerrant in their original translation, supernaturally preserved from God to us, the totally sufficient and final authority for the church in all things. I reached this place in my life where I started living according to this book that we call God's word. And it wasn't because of a blind faith, it was because of an informed decision. It wasn't because of a feeling, it was because of a bevy of evidence that was laid out before me and it was a desire to be consistent and to take the path that seemed most logical. And I became a Christian. I want you to know that I believe that God is real and you'll stand before him at the end of this life. And if you're at a place where you would like to follow Jesus as your leader and forgiver, you can text I'm in, I am I in to 474747. If you're ready to follow him, if you're ready to take his word at its word, um, I would love to get in contact with you this week. Text that number and we'll reach out to you and help you with that. But uh, listen, I'm really excited for the rest of this series. Next week, I think is gonna be the best, most powerful week as we talk about evidence for God creating the universe. I wanna answer legitimate questions that so many of us have had. And uh, as we close, I'd like to ask you to stand and I'd like to ask to pray for faith in the church.
God in heaven, I lift up this church to you. I thank you that you are the giver of faith. I ask that you would give us faith. Deep, steadfast, unwavering faith. God, I thank you that you never have asked for blind faith. You've always given signs, wonders, miracles. Today, we look at your miracles, and as a church, I ask that you would give even the skeptics in this room the courage to choose faith. Lord, I lift up a young, new generation. I ask that you wouldn't just give them a faith. I ask that you'd give them such a strong, inspiring, informed faith that their children and their grandchildren, generation after generation, would love you, that all of their descendants would love you without exception until your return, Lord. I pray that you would start a great new faith movement through the people, especially the young generations in this church. You are so good. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this one last song together.